We're going to run this pop quiz like an old school Sunday school sword drill. But instead of grabbing your Bible and flipping to the passage and raising it up because it snowed outside in September, we all need to get our blood pumping. The first one to stand up gets to answer the question. If they answer the question wrong, don't trip. The community, the body of believers, will help to supply you with another answer until we can pass with the correct answer. This quiz is on nothing that we haven't covered already. And every single answer was given to us in what we just listened to. What was the first tragedy to unfold in the book of Ruth? Boom. Give her a round of applause. What was the second tragedy? He's holding the baby, so go for it. Close. Close. Something happened between that. I'll give you a hint. Exile. They, who said that? All right. You've been helped. Phone a friend. Lifeline, baby. <laughs> they had to leave their homeland. They had chose to leave their homeland because of the famine, because they were searching for resources. Where was the family from? In the... Bethlehem in the land of Judah. Where did they flee to? Moab. Boom. Brent's cheating. He's not standing up. That goes to Tommy. I seen it. I seen it. <laughs> what was the third tragedy in the story? Got it. How many years passed between the death of Elimelech and his sons, Mahlon and Kilion? Ten. This girl's on fire over here. Look, we're five verses into the book. Famine. Exile. The death of a husband. The death of the sons. This story is intense. There is grief and pain and suffering. And as much as that sucks, all of us can identify with it. Which means that if we get to know the characters in this story, the story will come to life in whole new ways. Because we can go, oh, I'm not alone, even though I feel alone. Historically, people have been dealing with tragedy from the beginning of time. And I can draw strength and encouragement from what? From this ancient Near Eastern text that comes out of Mesopotamia from the Hebrew people known as the book of Ruth. Who did the narrator give credit to for bringing an end to the famine? Boom. Yahweh. He even used God's proper name. God has one name in the Old Testament and it's Yahweh. And he has a ton of titles. God has one name in the Old Testament, and it's Yahweh. He has many titles. You don't, yeah, you, 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 all right, all right, all right, we'll give you that one. Which of the daughters, which of the daughters-in-law returned home to Moab? Go ahead, he's not standing, but he's raising his hand. That's all right, what you got? Yeah. Yeah, Orpah, yes, that's the correct... Yeah. Yeah. Interesting story. You know, Oprah had a mom who had a low level of literacy. And her mom wanted to name her daughter Orpah, but there was a misspelling on her birth certificate. And that's how Oprah got her name. Her, her name was supposed to be Orpah, but her mom misspelled it. Low level of literacy. It's crazy, right? that Oprah's got a mom who loves God and wants to name her daughter after 
a woman in the text of Scripture, and then a spelling error kind of gives her a really cool story, though, to tell, you know? All right, so if Orpah went home to the fields of Moab, which one clung to Naomi? Ruth. All right, we talked about this last week. What did we say the book's dominant literary feature was? I see your face. What? Ethan asked the same question. What is a literary feature? Remember, when I asked the question. What's it? Yeah, so I hear when they're speaking dialogue. Dialogue is just a fancy word for conversation. The dominant literary feature in the book of Ruth is dialogue. Of the 80 plus verses, over 50 of them consist of dialogue. We want to know the book that we're reading. We want to get familiar with its cast, with its literary features, with its purpose, with its theology, with its geography, with its language, because it wasn't written in English. <laughs> These are all things that we want to get to know if we want to get to know the heart behind the author's intention. What did he mean? What was his intention? How did the original audience understand what it was that he was trying to communicate? Not what is my Western, first world, American takeaway. What is the text actually talking about? You want to get at the heart of God? Get into the Word of God. On the road back to Bethlehem, what silenced Naomi? Does Ozzy know the answer? You don't really know it? That's all right. You're not alone. That is a cool toy. <laughs> That's right, when she realized that Ruth wouldn't give up and that Ruth was determined. You know, Naomi attempted to bless Orpah and Ruth and send them back to their mother's houses so that they could remarry and live a life of high quality provision and protection in their homeland. And Ruth clung to Naomi, she refused. And when she clung to her, they were on a public highway, most likely the king's highway, and she swore an oath to Naomi in the public. And she swore this oath before God in the name of God. And it was that which silenced Naomi. Because Naomi knew, I'm the created. <laughs> Yahweh is the creator. She just swore an oath in the name of the creator. I lack the authority to nullify this oath that Ruth just took. So I must silence myself and walk on even though that's not what I want. Last question. Was Ruth's oath temporary or eternal? I heard it. Eternal. Yeah, we got a guest in the back who stands up and fires off the answer. Hi, Marty. It's good to see you. Welcome home. <laughs> All right, so the quiz is done. We have passed collectively as a body because we've helped one another out. If we could do that in a pop quiz, <laughs> then we should be able to do that in every aspect of life. There will be times in life when we need help, when we don't know the answer. That's where the community comes in. The community is God's given safety net to the body of believers. Spirit-filled safety net. So that when someone is falling or they can't bear up under the pressure, we go, I got your back. And we come alongside and we pick them up and we walk with them. I'm going to pray and then we'll get into the study for this morning. Father, thank you for all that you're doing in our body locally, all that you're accomplishing in our city through our local missions with Young Lives and our global missions with the Bats family who's getting ready to go to Togo on the continent of Africa and with our family that we're connected to the rights who are getting ready to go to Southeast Asia. We pray, Father, that you would continue to build what has been started. That we would operate from a foundation of victory knowing that when Christ 
on the cross said, Tadalestai, it is finished. That he meant it. And that we're fighting from a position of victory. The war has been won, but the battles are ongoing. Father, as we come before your word this morning, which is our primary source, as it reveals your character and your nature, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would be on the move in our midst, transforming our minds, softening our hearts. Give us the ability to plug in, to pay attention with all of the distractions of the world and all of the noise, the background noise, God. We pray that this time would be a time that we set our focus on you. That we run toward you. That we set aside our presuppositions and we ask ourselves with integrity, what is God attempting to say? Not what is it that I want him to say or what is it that I hope that he says or what is it that I wish I could change about what he says, but what is it that he's actually communicating? God, that's what we want. We want to get at the heart of the issue. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we ask that we would honor and glorify you in the study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so today's text comes out of Ruth. We're going to close chapter 1. We're going to read verse 19 and 22. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So last week, scene one in chapter one closed in total silence between both Ruth and Naomi as they traveled back to the land of Israel from Moab. Remember, we said that the first five verses were an expository, uh, they, they function as an expository, uh, like literary feature to set the background. We're removed from the text. Thousands of years, language, geography, culture. So what the narrator accomplished in the first five verses was setting the background for us so that we could understand what year it was, who was reigning and ruling, and how the nation of Israel was operating. Following the first five verses, our next study, we dealt with scene one. Remember, this is a story. It's a short story. It has historical people, which means real people in a real place at a real point in time. It functioned as scene one, the next set of verses, the pericope that we studied last week. And now we're in chapter two, and we're dealing with scene two. And it opens in Bethlehem. As I was reading, I was like, wait a second. Are you kidding me? <laughs> scene one ends, curtain drops, curtain raises, and they're in Bethlehem? What the heck? Yeah! It's like, no! Bro, give me the details! I want the details! We already know this! We know that these two women traveled alone across rugged mountainous terrain, which is now known as modern-day Jordan. We know this. This trip probably would have taken these two ladies seven to ten days to complete, weather permitting, and they would have walked in sandals. And we get no details. This map is a topography map. It shows terrain features. And the land is not friendly to those traveling it. These are two women in the ancient Near East with no protection, both widows, and they're traveling 50 to 60 miles. These are the facts. We get the facts, we put them on the table, 
We deal with the evidence. We weigh the data. And the author, who just so happens to be the storyteller, is like, I'm going to withhold all the details. The curtain's going to close on scene one. Boom! They're in Bethlehem. Come on, bro. You can't just push the story forward like that on me. I want to know how they got there. And all of a sudden, they're just there. Can you guys read this for me, please? Bethlehem, Jerusalem. We've got a different topographical map just to make sure that we're not stacking, you know, the chips in our favor. <laughs> it's approximately five to six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Notice how the narrator uses repetition to draw our attention to the city of Bethlehem. And scholar James McNoan reminds us that as modern students of the text, it's the destination that's important. And I'm like, great! Tell me how they got there. And he's like, Matt. This is like as I'm reading his literature. I can hear his voice. Matt, it doesn't matter how they got there. The focus is on the destination. And I'm like, no. I want the details. And he's like, sorry, bro. You don't get them. You focus on the destination. And the destination was Bethlehem. So if this is the case, and the narrator is spotlighting this reality for us, we should probably focus on the city and then focus on the city's response to the two women's return. So let's talk about the city. Bethlehem, the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Bethlehem, the house of bread. A city which was pinpointed, pun intended, approximately six miles south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem. A city positioned on the western side of the Jordan River. Okay, let's look at some more maps. Maps are cool. Here's the Jordan River. North, east, south, west. Four cardinal directions. Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Judah are on the western side of the Jordan River, a part of the Fertile Crescent. Ancient Near Eastern. Modern day. West of the Jordan, Bethlehem, a city. Once again, it was surrounded by fertile fields of barley and wheat. The famine was over. Barley harvest was just beginning. Everybody was excited because it was time to eat good. Nobody's starving anymore. The Lord has visited us, and he has placed his favor on us. However, as Naomi returns to Bethlehem, it becomes clear to those of us in the audience who are reading the story and listening to the story that her personal famine is far from over. It is. Having focused on the geography of the city, now we can break down the city's response. First, we may want to consider the idea that they were now entering Bethlehem like literally walking through the city's gate. And when they had come to Bethlehem. Let's go to the next slide. Notice the change in language. If there's a textual variant in the English, it's probably worth considering there may be a textual variant in the Hebrew. What does the author mean when he says they came to and they had come to? Is he giving us a wide-angle shot of the ladies walking toward the city? And then zooming in for the close-up as they walk through the gate of the city? It's worth considering. Maybe. It's worth considering. You know, the second point is that Hubbard argues that in ancient cities, the comings and goings of two women would hardly qualify as something noticeable. I looked in the text, and I could only find men walking through the city grabbing the attention of people patriarchal culture. They're not going to observe and notice and reference the women. 
They're only going to observe and notice and reference the men. Why? Because it's natural to their culture. Yeah, well, I don't like that. Well, it's not our culture, and we don't operate like that. So we just got to deal with the text. It's how it was then. Go to the Middle East now. Tell me what it's like now. <laughs> it's not like it is here. <laughs> Things are different in different areas all over the globe. Who are we to think that our way is best, that we know best, and that they should change to be more like us? How prideful. Ego. Arrogance. It's stupid. Nobody likes a boastful, prideful, arrogant, ego-driven individual. So let's look in the mirror and say, how often do we put that on other cultures? Maybe we should stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could learn something. If we would just, you know, in modern day language, take an anthropology course on the Orient or the ancient Near East or the Near East or the East and see what we stand to learn from them. They've been around a whole lot longer than us. <laughs> Just saying. So Hubbard argues that in ancient cities, the comings and goings of two women would hardly qualify as something noticeable. However, out of the ancient Near East, we have a narrator who does highlight two women walking through the city gate. Not only does he highlight them walking through the city gate, but he says it caused a stir in all of Bethlehem. Maybe Israel's culture is different from the Moabite culture or the Canaanite culture or the Amorite culture. Just maybe. Can we produce a document from those people's culture historically that highlights the work of women? Not in the Moabite stone. Not in the code of Hammurabi. But you can in the Bible. It's interesting. Maybe the God of the Bible is not egotistical and ethnocentric and misogynistic because he inspired the activity of women to be captured in his text and communicated for the whole of time. Just saying. Like, it's important to recognize that God is not just for the men. God is for the women. Two books in his Bible. Ruth and Esther. One's a foreign Moabite woman not even of the people of Israel, and the other is about a woman, probably not even born in Israel, born in exile, who marries a pagan foreign king and lives the entirety of her life away from temple with no Torah. Just saying. Like, these are important things to consider when you read the Word of God. God is an advocate for all. He's not for some and against others, but there are those who are not for him and stand against him. Just a little bit of context. A little bit of critical thinking. Some of the walls that we put up start to come down. Third, the narrator is spotlighting the reality that at this point in the story, the collective voice belongs to who? The women. Oh. Yeah. The collective voice belongs to the women. And fourth, this is more of a rhetorical question. Is this Naomi? This is a rhetorical question when you get into the syntax and the grammar of the original language. Well, what does that mean? It means that we should probably understand it more like a statement. Wow. Naomi's back. And as the guys are scratching their head, all of the ladies in the room are like, ah, I get it. I get it. <laughs> they're not speaking to Naomi. They're speaking to one another about Naomi. Hey, girl. <laughs> oh, shoot. Is that Naomi over there? No, 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 no. Don't look. She's going to know I'm talking about her. Why is she dressed like that? Where's Elimelech? And who's that chick following her? Right, ladies? 
Yeah, men, wipe the smiles off your faces because y'all gossip just as much, if not more. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't nobody safe in this room. We call them like we see it. It's the truth. These are just people being people. The narrative comes to life when you get into the shoes and you look through the eyes of the characters. Can we see what's happening to Naomi? She returns home after a decade. And it's more than fair to say that not one of us would want to be in her position. Nobody enjoys being put into a position like this. And while Naomi may be old, <laughs> she ain't blind and she ain't dumb. Can you all read this next one for me? She wasn't going to let it slide. She could hear the whispers in the background. She wasn't going to let it slide. She was probably thinking, oh, y'all want to talk about me? <laughs> My 10 years in Moab hardened me. <laughs> y'all want to talk? I got something to say. How many of us know not to mess with the bitter old lady, <laughs> right? <laughs> you don't mess with the bitter old woman, right? If Led Zeppelin can get it right, hell hath no fury like then I think the author of the scripture can get it right. I'm just, it's like, come on, man. One plus one equals two. These are things that we know. You don't mess with the bitter old woman. And let's remember that Naomi could be translated pleasant or sweetness. It may even be rendered my joy. So once again, we see irony in the text. There's irony in the text. Do we read it literally? All of it? Not around here. Because there's irony in the text. And the irony exists in how the bitter old lady addresses the women of Bethlehem. And if you don't know what her name means, whoosh, slides right by you. It's a literary device that the author's using because he knows his Hebrew-speaking audience wouldn't miss it. Raise your hand if you speak or read Hebrew. O for O. There you go. She's going, uh, yeah, you helped, your, 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 your helped somebody back in the day accomplish a master's, which included learning Hebrew. If we don't know those things, whoosh, slides right by us. Block argues that time and grief and deprivation had taken their toll on Naomi. Ten years had passed. When Naomi left Bethlehem, she was a robust woman in the prime of her life. And we can say that without a doubt because in the ancient Near East, she had a husband and two sons to carry on her name. The sole purpose of a woman in the ancient Near East was to bear sons to carry on the family legacy. I don't like that. Your problem's not with me. Your problem is with the people and the culture that they embraced. They embraced this. So don't get angry at me and don't get angry at the author of the text because he's just writing to the people who lived in a time so that they could actually understand what it was that he was trying to communicate. Ten years had passed. The full, the feeling of being full, the fullness and identity that she had found in her husband and her two sons had been snatched away. Now hearing whispers circulating among the women in Bethlehem, is this Naomi? <laughs> she decides to speak out and interrupt the buzz, venting years of frustration. Anybody ever been frustrated because of loss? Raise your hand. Yeah. I can get on board with this. I know to some degree how she feels. Now it's here that we need to slow down for just a moment because we need to understand what it is that Naomi's actually doing here is she vents her frustration. Because that's what she's doing. She's venting her frustration. This could be considered a public form of lament. In Israel, names were not just labels of individuality. They were descriptions of character, inner character, which in turn 
were presumed to influence a person's conduct. Look, when I was a kid and I was being disobedient, my mom would be like, come here, son. Your name is Matthew, and Matthew means gift from God. And your behavior is not indicative of your name. I need you to change your behavior. I'd look at her and be like, what? My name means what? I'd go out with my friends. They're like, hey, Jonathan, Greg, Eric, what does your names mean? Pff, we don't know. Our parents probably just liked those names and decided that that's what they were going to name us. Yeah, me too. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was different then than it is now. Names were given to people, and people knew the meaning behind their name, and the name, the hope of the parents was that the name would drive the behavior of the individual. Naomi's not pleasant anymore, is she? She's not sweet anymore, is she? To me, this stuff is cool. I hope that this helps the story come to life for you. You know, as we're slowing down and we're finding out that she's venting frustration and she's publicly lamenting and we're learning about names and how they functioned in the ancient Near East, like, we grow in our ability to understand what it is that God wants us to know. Which is why at AC Squared, we affirm the reality that context determines meaning. What would slip right past us otherwise and what would be so clear to the original audience it takes a little bit of work to get at that, and we're willing to do the work here so that we can be informed believers. Mara in Hebrew means bitterness. This word association in the Hebrew would have immediately connected in the minds and the hearts of the children of Israel, and it would have connected them to their history books. Check it out. Let's put the next slide up. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Next slide. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. He threw the tree into the waters, and the waters became sweet. Is this another literary device? Is the narrator signaling hope of what the future may hold? In Israel's history, it was Yahweh who was responsible for turning one's bitterness into sweetness. You have turned my mourning into joy, the psalmist says. So, the psalmist says this at a future date, and the experience of the nation earlier on the timeline teaches us this. And Naomi's literally living it out. And in the Hebrew, boop, 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 red flags are going off in the minds of the audience. We want to know these things because these things are important. Humanly speaking, from Naomi's perspective, she had become the enemy of God. Her demand for a change of name embodies her interpretation of her life's experiences, period. No longer call me Mara, or no longer call me Naomi. My life is not sweet. It's not pleasant. Call me Mara. It's bitter. It's as bitter as it was for Israel in the wilderness when they had no water. Is there any hope of change without the hand of Yahweh? Not according to Exodus. So why should Mara feel any hope? Ah, now we know why this old lady is so bitter. And it's okay, because she's a human being, and God created her just like this. Maybe it's his way of saying, do you want to come closer to me? Or do you want to stand out there alone and complain? I'm here for you. I love you. But I need you to take a step. Just maybe. It's worth considering. Call me Mara, for Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me? Yahweh again, and Shaddai has afflicted me. 
We don't have time to get into it today, but if you go and you read about the differences between the name of God, His proper name Yahweh, and His title Shaddai, you will learn what Shaddai means. El Shaddai. And then it will help you understand why she's using these different names to describe Yahweh in different ways. Schwab writes that it's more than fair to assume that Naomi had no idea why Yahweh has purpose to harm her. In fact, Naomi interprets the difficult circumstances of her life as God's testimony against her. It's as if we can hear her saying, bitterness is my reality. Bitterness is all I know. Nobody wants to feel like this, but sometimes life makes us feel like this. How do we react? How do we respond? Naomi is saying, my life's experience is truth. Oh. So now, maybe being postmodern isn't as cool and as new as we thought. Because it's not very postmodern if Naomi's talking this way in the ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian context. She's saying in this statement that my bitterness is my reality and my life's experiences is my truth. So I will redefine my perception of God based on my experiences. Hmm. Is this safe? <laughs> I mean, that's a good question to ask. Is this safe? Is it safe to redefine one's perception of God based on their life's circumstances? A singular moment in time, and I'll redefine God just because I don't like what's going on. Is that safe? One of the best ways to answer this question is to ask if the narrator of the story agrees with the character who's speaking in the story. Remember, we talked about this. The narrator in Hebrew narrative is omniscient. This means they have all the details to the story. And as we've seen, this narrator loves to withhold details. And it drives me nuts because I want the details. So we have to put in some work if we want to answer the question. Is Naomi speaking truth in this claim? Can you go back to the, to the next slide? We have to ask, is Naomi speaking truth in this slide? For the sake of conversation, I would throw it out there. You know, it's worth mentioning that the text uses irony, the irony of one's life choices to teach us how not to live more often than it teaches us how to live. So that's an important thing to put in your pocket too when you're studying. Just because David had an affair with Bathsheba and he was a man after God's own heart, doesn't mean I can cheat on Callan. That's probably not behavior that I want to pick up from David. Just because Moses strikes the rock when God tells him to speak to it, doesn't mean it's okay for me to lash out when I'm not getting my way. <laughs> Maybe we learn not how to live based on these characters in the Bible more than we learn actually how to live. It's beautiful how the authors of Scripture, they refuse to sanitize the text. They could have withheld all of this stuff, and they left it in there. They do not sanitize the text. They are notoriously good at including the bad and the ugly along with what is upright and righteous. It's like they trust God and the process of writing the truth and just letting the chips fall where they may. God is not going to judge us arbitrarily for rejecting him or for rejecting his word. <laughs> he didn't sanitize it. We've been given everything that we need, not everything that we want for life and godliness. So when we stand before him one day, he's going to be able to say, I put my glory on display in the natural and I put my glory on display in the special. And you didn't want me, so you're not going to get me. I'm going to give you what you want. It's not an arbitrary judgment. He will not rape you into the kingdom by forcing you to do something that you don't want. He will give you exactly what you want. You don't want him, you don't get him. 
it. He's got evidence too. Our whole lives on display. <laughs> Something to consider. We don't sanitize it around here either. We keep it 100. It's tough. These are tough things to talk about. I got family members who don't want God. Should I hate him because he's not going to give them eternal life? It would be better, Lord, if you would just give them what they don't want. And he's like, that's not how it works. You actually charge people in your own system, men and women, for taking things that they, taking things from other people <laughs> by force that the other person would not want to give up. So why would, God, why would we want God to do that in this one area and have a, an inconsistent hermeneutic that we would apply in every other area? It's not how life works. We want to be a consistent people. A hermeneutic, is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the scientific way you approach the text. So it's how you study the Bible. And in science, we want consistency, right? And everybody's shaking their head because they're all right now being told to trust the science. And we don't know what the science says. And it seems like science is inconsistent. Just think about your modern current circumstances. Do you want consistency in the science? I do. I want to know what's best for me and my body. I want to know what's best for my loved ones. Well, we want to be consistent in our scientific approach to the text. As we study it, we want our hermeneutic to be consistent. Thank you, Art. This is why I love our family. Because they're like, I don't know what that means. Explain that to me. Like, help me out here. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's push pause and let's do that. So let's ask the question, does the narrator agree with Naomi that God has singled her out for punishment? Citing the works of Freeman, Christhol notes that first there are 21 direct references to God in the book, only five of which are negative. All five come from the lips of Naomi. Overall, when we look at the whole book, its positive and neutral references to God outweigh the negative ones. Second, we must consider the counter-references to Naomi's claims. She tells everyone, call me Mara, nobody does it. Following her claim where she says, call me Mara, for a grand total of 13 times, narrator Boaz and Boaz's foreman explicitly and unapologetically call her Naomi. C, when Naomi refuses to acknowledge Ruth's presence in the closing act because Naomi doesn't speak of her or speak to her, she claims she returned empty. And the narrator's like, no, you didn't, Naomi. Ruth is with you. <laughs> And D, finally, in the conclusion of the story, the women of Bethlehem counter Naomi's claims, spotlighting that God had provided her with a redeemer. The text of Ruth, in its entirety, suggests that God is benevolent. He's the source of all the assistance that Naomi and Ruth experience. Therefore, Friedman argues that Naomi's criticism of God, of God afflicting her, it stems from her experience, and ultimately, her claim gets invalidated by the text. God is her advocate. He's not her enemy. Chris Tome goes on. He's like, I'm done citing Freeman. He's like, we can't assume that God struck down Elimelech and his sons. The context suggests that God did not. He argues this by stating that the narrator never attributes the death of anyone to God. He says we need to respect the silence of the narrator, especially in light of Friedman's evidence. Here's the clincher for me. While all, all that happens in the world ultimately falls on under the umbrella of God's sovereign dominion, that hardly means that the death of a loved one is an act of some kind of divine judgment. The scriptures depict God's relationship to death as very complex. God's relationship to death is very complex in the text. On the one hand, he's sovereign over death, and sometimes he uses it as an instrument of judgment. On the other hand, death is God's archenemy. The archenemy that will be defeated in the final battle. As the theology of Israel grows over time because they didn't get a download from God, they had to get to know him through relationship. In the New Testament, we learn that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death is not from God. Death is a result of sin. What else does the New Testament teach us as the theology develops? Well, as Christians, don't we believe that death is going to be the final enemy swallowed up in victory? Yeah. 
how was that accomplished? Through the death and resurrection of God. So why are we blaming God for death when the narrator doesn't do it? Why do we make him our enemy? It's so easy to blame you when I can't feel you, God. When I don't see you, God. You're nowhere. And he's like, oh, dude, dude, nowhere? Oh. Satan holds the power of death. He uses it to terrorize the human race. And as Christians, we know that God will finally deliver us from its presence when he establishes the new Jerusalem. When we use a view of Naomi's experience and we take the Bible as a whole and we use biblical theology instead of systematic theology, Naomi's deterministic view is overly simplified to say the least. God only works this way. Always. Sorry, brah. God works differently at different times with different people in different ways. Don't reduce him down to one. It's ridiculous that we do this, though. I need an answer. And then we argue that we're not making logical leaps to defend our system. Let me apologize to anybody who came up in a system of abuse in the church. I can't apologize for them, but we can acknowledge that their behavior was wrong. We can acknowledge that they're people and they're not God and that our faith should never have been put in them or the organization and it should have been put in God and we should understand that people, are, people suck. <laughs> I suck. So we need to get over it. Not the trauma. We need to work through that, but we need to get over the fact that all people suck and then we need to deal with the trauma and ask God to bring healing in our lives. Because as we're learning, it's not his fault. Human beings are bound to fall short of God's glory when things are going well. What do we think is going to happen in the midst of catastrophe? Our call is to grieve with those who are grieving. Tommy said it earlier. One scholar points out that in chapter 1, that after chapter 1, the narrative builds on the differences between Naomi's perspective of how things are over and against the actual truth. This is why we must always allow the text to frame our view of God's character and nature. We don't allow our experiences to frame God, to put God in a box. We don't allow our experiences. We allow the text to frame our view of God's character and nature. We're bound as human beings to waver in life circumstances. We're inconsistent. We're not faithful. This is why we need to recognize our need for a redeemer. We're the created. We're forever dependent on God. And it just so happens that according to the Bible, he's our greatest advocate. That's why they call it the gospel, because it's actually good news. Naomi was in the depths of her despair. She believed that it was the Almighty who had dealt bitterly with her. And because she believed this was true, she also believed no one could help her. Who's going to usurp Yahweh's authority? Naomi was convinced that the only one who was able to help her had refused to help her. That's a horrible place to be in your life. And I've been there. Anyone else been there? Anyone else there right now? It's not what we want, Lord. Change it. And he's like, come to me. Full. Full, I went away, and empty Yahweh brought me back. Or, I, full, yeah, full, I went, full I, I went away, and empty Yahweh brought me back. Do we see it? I don't even know if we see it, because I didn't see it. Someone pointed this out for me. In the midst of her outcry against God, he was patient, merciful, gracious, and long-suffering. God misses nothing. Not a single detail gets past God. Naomi spoke out of her frustration, reacting to what she heard from the mouths of the women in Bethlehem. But God heard what Naomi said. Yahweh has brought me back. 
that mustard seed of faith is enough for God. He's the one who brought me home. Even if he brought me home empty, he's still good in that he brought me home. Everything was crashing down around her. Everything. God is in the business of rescuing, redeeming, and reconciling. Read the Bible. Take the rose-colored lenses off and just read the Bible. Do we believe it, though, that God is capable of these things, or do we just say it? Was God not faithful? Naomi was back home. It was the beginning of the barley harvest, and she didn't return alone. But she said all the opposite. Finally, before we close, doesn't it seem odd that the narrator chooses to communicate that Ruth the Moabitess returned from the land of Moab to Bethlehem? She returned? What? She returned from Moab to the land of Bethlehem. That's an interesting statement. How did she return from the land of Moab to Bethlehem? A woman born of a nation who, according to Deuteronomy, had been cursed due to their treatment of Israel while Israel was wandering around in the wilderness. The narrator says that she, Ruth, returned from the land of Moab to Bethlehem. And as far as we know it, she'd never been there before. And then it clicked. Naomi. Yep. Naomi had experienced a physical return to the land, but Ruth, Ruth, Maury Gao argues that although Ruth had never previously been to Judah, by entering the community of Israel, to whose God she had given her allegiance, remember her oath, Ruth had finally come home to her true home. It's a return to Yahweh in the land of Yahweh. Ruth has been reconciled back to the one true God of the universe, no longer fractured because of what took place in the garden. She was now with God. It's here in verse 22 that we get a front row seat to the physical and the spiritual realities. Now we're talking dimensions in the text. Right, Art? It's absolutely true to say that God is in the business of rescuing, redeeming, and reconciling. Chapter 1 began with famine and departure. It ended with harvest and return. The contrast of the seedless woman returning to the well-seeded land is powerful, and it offers hope to the audience as we grieve with Naomi. My hope today, this is my hope, is that we walk away from this morning's study with a clear understanding of how complex life's issues can be. You want to reduce life's issues down to an oversimplified, irrational argument because it gives us some sort of answer that we claim to be comfortable with? I don't want to do that. My prayer is that we don't oversimplify our experiences or the experiences of those around us simply because I need an answer. Let's get comfortable with not always having the answer. Yeah, let's do that. Let's get comfortable with not always having the answer. Can we sit silently with those who are suffering? Can we? Do we sit silently with those who are suffering? Go read the book of Job. As soon as they open their mouths, that's when they screwed up. Can we sit silently? Taylor writes that God is the Lord of nature and history, but that doesn't mean that God is the direct, unmediated cause of the suffering we experience in this life. As human beings, we simply do not know enough to be in a position to definitively answer the question, why suffering occurs. We don't have that knowledge. The Christian response to suffering should be practical. First. Practical rather than theoretical. Are we willing to bear one another's burdens as Christ bore and continues to bear ours? That's the question. Because that's practical. In the book of Ruth, the narrator portrays Naomi as a real person in a conflicted world. Humanly speaking, she just reacts to crisis. Her response may lack solid theology. Oh well! What do you expect from someone who's suffering? 
Are we seriously going to be so pious in our lifestyle that when someone is suffering, we're like, I can't believe she said that. Shut up. Let her grieve. She's hurting. And you don't have the answer. And you are not the answer. Who cares if her response lacks solid theology? One of the most beautiful aspects of the story is that Yahweh did not abandon her because of her theology. He didn't care that her theology was deficient or because she spoke in non-acceptable religious cliches. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Why do we do this? He's going to work it all out for you, baby. He's going to work it all out for good. You don't know that. I know the plans that God has for you, the plans to prosper you. That was for Israel. That was not for us. Don't rip it out of context and speak some... to somebody. I'm not going to curse from here. Because people call me out. They call me and they're like, bro, I can't believe you said that. Like, and I, I know, I know, I'm a bad pastor. I'm a bad pastor. Put your faith in God, don't put your faith in me. How about that? You know? We're talking about real people in a real place in real time. And God does not abandon people. God has never required perfection in the lives of those he chose to engage in his mission of grace to the world. And when we forget that, because we will forget that, because we're human, I pray that we return to the word of God where we encounter Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Job and Samson and King David and Solomon and, King and Elijah and King Manasseh, the prophet Jeremiah and Jonah and Esther and men like Thomas and Peter. Failures! I can fit in there! Because I'm a failure. I can get down with that. I don't have to be perfect because God doesn't expect me to be perfect. And when I screw it up, he'll fix it. Burden off back. Yoke easy. Lit path. Let's walk. God chooses to use us no matter what we're going to do or say. Can we make the commitment as a church that when we encounter the lives of individuals who, like Naomi, are bitter due to life circumstances, we will resist the desire to speak? Let's do that. Let's make a commitment as a family that when people are suffering, we will resist the desire to speak and we'll just sit with them and grieve and suffer because it sucks and it's hard. I want us to strive to sit in silence, trusting that God will meet them there, right where they are, and that he will refuse to leave them there. Why? Because he is our redeemer. He's the redeemer. And we say that Christ is enough. So why don't we start living like it? Father, thank you for this day and for this sermon, for this opportunity to read your word and find out that you're our advocate and that you're not our adversary, that you love us, you actually love us, that while we were still sinners, while we were your enemy, you died for us, that we would hold all these things in tension with the way that we experience life and that when life is hard we would run to you knowing that you're not going to hold our mistakes against us as far as the east is from the west and you will not choose to bring it up and use it as ammunition against us in the future your grace and your mercy and your long-suffering your steadfastness. They're authentic, Lord, and we want to reflect those things and we want to lay aside all of the trash that we carry along in this life. Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you 
for the exemplary models that you've given us to study, knowing that Christ is central and that we learn from him first and that we draw all types of wisdom from the lives of others.